Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 25, the completion of Genesis chapter 25. All right, last week we began the story of the all-important event of the birth of Jacob, who would become the first Israelite. Now, what I would like to do is pause, all right, and kind of put all this in perspective, all right, and, and watch the progress of the patriarchs. Abraham, who was Jacob's grandfather, if we'll recall, began life as a pagan. Okay, the world at the time of Abraham's birth was really only one kind of people, the human race. Oh, other than genealogical and social divisions, um, all humans were about the same in, in uh, Yahweh's eyes, the one exception perhaps being the line of Ham, one of Noah's three sons who was an accursed line. But as of Abraham's time, there was no division of humanity. There was no set-apart people yet. Well, once God called Abraham to leave his country and his immediate family, then began the process of the divine dividing of the world. Right, into two groups of people. His people and everybody else. Okay, The name we give his people, God's people, the name we find in the Bible is Hebrew. The Hebrews. So when Abraham obeyed God and he moved to the land of Canaan by declaration. And hear this word, you're going to hear it a lot today. By declaration did God divide mankind into Hebrews on the one hand and all else on the other. A decision by Abraham and a declaration by God were the sole factors in making Abraham different in God's eyes from all other human beings on the face of the planet. Now, Isaac, son of Abraham, represents the next step, if you would, in the evolution of the Hebrew people. Isaac was the first born Hebrew first born Hebrew. Purely by declaration was Abraham a Hebrew, but Isaac was Hebrew by birth. Yet even then, a declaration of God was still involved. Because Abraham had another son, Ishmael, which he thought to be his firstborn. Abraham thought that Ishmael was the one that was going to carry on the covenants 
that God had made with Abraham. In other words, from Abraham's point of view, until God told him otherwise, Ishmael was a Hebrew. And in the strictest sense, Ishmael was a Hebrew until something changed. Does that mess with your heads just a little bit? You see, a time came when Yahweh said to Abraham, not so fast, Abraham, just like I divided you away from your father and brother, I'm going to divide Ishmael away from you, his father, and his brother. Ishmael was divided and separated away from his father Abraham and his brother Isaac. The effect is that Ishmael was not going to continue being Hebrew, but Isaac was. So here's the $64,000 question. If Ishmael and Isaac both had a Hebrew father, Abraham, how come only one, Isaac, is today considered a Hebrew? Why isn't Ishmael just another branch of Hebrews? How come we don't think of Ishmael and all of his descendants, the ones we today pretty much refer to as Arabs? Right? Why don't we think of them instead as Hebrews too? Well, an important principle gets established here that every Jew and every Gentile needs to pay very close attention to. So please hear me on this and then put this into a permanent part of your memory banks. While birthright, that is genealogy, your physical bloodline, establishes your physical identity, your flesh and blood identity, it is the election and declaration of the Lord that establishes your spiritual identity. Your physical identity and your spiritual identity are two different matters, are they not? Okay. So the term Hebrew began by denoting much more than simple physical identity. Hebrew also defined a spiritual identity. Let me put that together for you. By God's design... Hebrew was meant to be a term that described a combination of physical and spiritual attributes of a person. Further, the life of a Hebrew, physically and spiritually, was to operate under a set of laws and promises that God made with that first Hebrew, Abraham. A Hebrew's earthly life was to revolve around his spiritual life. Okay. We call these laws and promises that define this overall life of a Hebrew the Abrahamic covenant. And later they were expanded and then given to Moses and are now called the Torah. So even though Isaac was physically of the right stock, to be a Hebrew, it still took an act of God, an election of God, for him to be declared a Hebrew. Think about it. Ishmael was also physically of the right stock to be a Hebrew. 
But God did not grant Ishmael that necessary spiritual status to be a Hebrew. Therefore, we have, with the election of Isaac and the rejection of Ishmael, an enormous fork in the road. Okay. One direction led to the Hebrews, the other direction away from the Hebrews. Well, as we start to deal in Genesis 25 with Isaac's twin sons, Jacob and Esau, we're going to see this process and this principle repeated yet again. The issue of who will be chosen as inheritor of the rights of the covenant given to Abraham is the crux of the whole matter. Put another way, between Jacob and Esau, God would declare his choice to be a Hebrew and the other one would not be. Both Jacob and Esau were, by all physical evidence, born from their Hebrew father, Isaac. By birth, if one went purely by physical definition, then it would seem that both Jacob and Esau would be Hebrews. And in a sense, they both were. But no, God would again, by declaration, divide. Let's remember that while we could see some physical and genealogical differences, if we look close, between Isaac and Ishmael, after all they had different mothers of different nationalities and so they were half-brothers, it was entirely different for Jacob and Esau because they, of course, had the same mother and father. Matter of fact, they were twins. Physically, genealogically, there was no difference between Jacob and Esau. Their DNA was almost identical. So how is it that Jacob was elected to be a Hebrew and Esau was not? It was by declaration alone. Okay? God's sovereign decision. That's what the word election means. Okay? That God chose Jacob over Esau. Jacob would become a Hebrew. Esau was stripped of his right to be called Hebrew. The only difference between Jacob and Esau was the spiritual difference. Right? And that was brought about purely by the declaration of God. So to help us better understand or to better define just what a Hebrew is, we can say that a Hebrew is one who has been made a descendant in the line of covenant promises given to Abraham. Or in more Bible terminology, a Hebrew is an inheritor of the covenant promises as given to Abraham. Okay. If a human being is an inheritor of the covenant promises, then that human being is part of God's set-apart people. And thus the world was, upon God's covenants with Abraham, divided into Hebrews and all other humans. Abraham established the line of the covenant promise at the declaration of God. Abraham's father and brother were excluded. 
Abraham's son Isaac continued the line of covenant promise at the declaration of God. And Abraham's other son, Ishmael, was excluded. Isaac's son, Jacob, would continue the line of covenant promise at the declaration of God. And Isaac's other son, Esau, would be excluded. But as we're going to see in a couple more chapters, from Jacob forward, from Jacob on forward, all descendants of Jacob would be called Hebrew. No more exclusions. No more election by declaration. Beginning with Jacob's offspring, one was now a Hebrew by law. If one was physically born to a Hebrew, that person was a Hebrew. But even more, if one who was not born a Hebrew, that is, he was a Gentile, if that Gentile wanted to become part of the Hebrew people, it was allowed by means of some rules, some laws that had been sent, set down by God. Now, are you following me on this? I mean, this is critical. Right? I, mean, I really hope so, because let me tell you something. While it may not seem like it, this applies to you, to me, everyone who lives on this planet. Okay? All of what I've been explaining sets up the pattern for how one becomes a part of God's people. Okay? So how one comes to be called part of God's set-apart people the Hebrews, who, by the way, eventually came to be called the Israelites, occurs by a number of sequential forks in the road. It starts with the Abraham fork, then the Isaac fork, then the Jacob fork. And you know what? It stays that way for about 1,800 years. Then 18 centuries after Jacob, we're going to find yet another fork in the road. Okay? It's called the New Covenant. And the New Covenant is an Old Testament prophecy about a time when these physical covenants and laws of the Hebrews called the Torah would be written spiritually on certain men's hearts. Okay? Not all men's hearts. Okay? Just those who were elected and declared by God to be His. A very exclusive group. And the way this would happen would be by means of a Messiah. And this new fork in the road brings us full circle from Abraham right on back around again. This fork brings to fruition that promise of the Abrahamic covenant that all the families of the earth will be blessed in you, Abraham. Okay. All doesn't mean Gentiles and not Jews. All also doesn't mean Jews and not Gentiles. All means all. Okay. Further, just who is included under the covenants of the Hebrews once again involves God's election and declaration. And the key to all of this is the Messiah. So this story we're about to dissect here now, in the last half of Genesis 25, the story of another crucial division and election and separation by the God of Israel, 
is one that has so many wonderful nuances and establishes so many messianic principles. Unfortunately, time only permits us to explore a couple of them. So let's read now from Genesis 25, verse 19, to the end of the chapter. Genesis 25, verse 19, to the end of the chapter. Here is the history of Isaac, Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rivka, the daughter of Bethuel, the Arami from Padan Aram, and sister of Lavan the Arami, to be his wife. Yitzhak prayed to Adonai on behalf of his wife because she was childless. Adonai heeded his prayer, and Rivka became pregnant. The children fought with each other inside her so much that she said, if it's going to be like this, why go on living? So she went to inquire of Adonai, who answered her. There are two nations in your womb. From birth, they will be two rival peoples. One of these peoples will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time for her delivery came, there were twins in her womb. The first to come out was reddish and covered all over with hair, like a coat. So they named him Esau. Then his brother emerged with his hand holding Esau's heel, so he was called Yaakov. Yitzhak was 60 years old. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. The boys grew, and Esau became a skillful uh, hunter, an outdoorsman, while Yaakov, Jacob, was a quiet man who stayed in the tents. Isaac favored Esau because he had a taste for game. Rivka favored Jacob. Now one day, when Jacob had cooked some stew, Esau came in from the open country exhausted and said to Jacob, Please, let me gulp down some of that red stuff. That red stuff, I'm exhausted. Jacob answered, First, sell me your rights as the firstborn. Look, I'm about to die, said Esau. What use are my rights to me as the firstborn? Jacob said, first, swear to me. So he swore to him, thus selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave him bread and lentil stew. He ate and drank, got up, and went on his way. Thus Esau showed how little he valued his birthright. Well, Rivka... Rebecca, wife of Isaac, is worried. Her womb is in an absolutely violent upheaval. What is going on in there is not normal. Okay? Now, these may have been her first children, but she had undoubtedly witnessed hundreds of pregnancies and probably assisted in not just a few births. Right? That's part of what women did. Okay, so she goes and she seeks Yahweh for reassurance and to calm her fears. And God gives her his answer. There's two nations that live within her. And what she's feeling is this violent struggle for dominance that's begun already. And even more, he tells Rebecca that the first one 
Out of the birth canal shall not be given the right and honor is the firstborn. In Hebrew, Bechor. B-E-K-H-O-R, Bechor. As was customary. Rather, it's going to be the second one out. Now, this is a theme that is ongoing in the Bible. A theme that separates what seems to be from a physical, earthly sense, from what actually is from a spiritual, heavenly point of view. I mean, from a physical sense, it seemed to Abraham that Ishmael, the son of his concubine Hagar, was his firstborn son, the son of promise. But from a spiritual sense, it was Isaac, to be born miraculously by Sarah, who was to have all the firstborn rights and to be the all-important son of promise. Here in Genesis 25, we're getting exactly the same thing. Rivka's carrying twins. And the law is that the first one to be born is the firstborn, the Bechor. And the second one to be born is more or less subservient to the first by rule. Now the fact that a firstborn was a twin meant very little. They didn't divide things up. They didn't each kind of get a share. They didn't have, they weren't co-presidents. They weren't co-firstborns. All right. One is chosen, the other is not. And the way the law was, the very first one out, all right, that was the firstborn. So this violent struggle in Rivka's womb foretells this coming struggle over just which will dominate the other. Now even more we find that God has already predetermined the outcome. Neither Isaac nor Rivka are involved in this decision. Well in verse 23 Rivka is told that the older will serve the younger. In other words the physical firstborn will not receive the usual and customary rights of the before, the firstborn. Instead, the second will be given that right. Now, the eternal importance of this matter is that the physical firstborn, which is Esau, is not going to be the inheritor of the covenant promises. Instead, the physical secondborn. Jacob is going to be the inheritor. Jacob is the Behor on a spiritual level. He is the firstborn based on divine declaration. Now notice, the firstborn, the physical firstborn of Isaac, who will be Esau, is parallel to Ishmael, the physical firstborn of Abraham. The spiritual firstborn of Isaac, who will be Jacob, is parallel to Isaac, the spiritual firstborn of Abraham and the future carrier of the covenant promises. So we have here this ongoing principle and pattern of the reality of duality. Everything has a spiritual reality and a physical reality, and they exist simultaneously. But this much is also certain. These two separate nations... One being Jacob and the other Esau will have enmity for one another. This is part of the outcome of the phrase, the older shall serve the younger. Now, the twins are born. And the first one, first one to be born was Esau. 
He was of red or ruddy complexion and very hairy. You know, just a lovable little fuzzball. <laughs> Doesn't he look lovable, do you? So here's where some knowledge of Hebrew comes in handy. Okay. The Hebrew word for hairy, as used in this verse, is sear. If that word rings a bell for you, it should. Because we'll find out later in Genesis that Esau moved away from Jacob and established his nation in the district called Mount Seir. This is a word play. Mount Seir got its name from Esau being born very Seir, hairy. So Mount Seir, named after a characteristic of Esau, literally means hairy mountain or Mount Harry. <laughs> now we're also told that during the birth process, Jacob was holding on to Esau's heel. The idea being that Jacob was trying to keep Esau from being born first. Now, to better explain what comes next, we should here understand that Rebecca would not have kept this information that Yahweh gave her about the destinies of her twin sons to herself. That would have been disloyal to her husband. Rather, she would have told him probably post-haste of what God had told her, that whichever of the twins came out first was not to be declared Bechor, firstborn. Rather, it was the second to emerge that God instructed was to have that designation. After all, there was little of more importance in a family of that era than who would succeed the father and authority of the clan. Okay, That successor being the Bechor. All right, the, the firstborn. Even more, you can be sure that Rebecca informed her twin sons, Esau and Jacob, of God's determination that Jacob and not Esau would be Bechor. How cruel it would have been to have waited until their maturity to inform them of this all-important decree, a decree that mother and father were aware of before these children were even born. So it's with this understanding of the entire family's awareness of the younger Jacob being destined to have the birthright above the older Esau that we have to view what happens next. As the story unfolds, we find that as is common within families, parents have their favorites. Isaac preferred Esau. Esau was apparently impetuous and brave and skillful with a bow, quite macho. All right, things that dads typically admire in their sons. Jacob was more quiet and introspective, more sensitive, things which mothers typically prefer. Okay. Now notice our parallel once again with Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael was a favorite of Abraham. Isaac was a favorite with his mother. Okay. When Yahweh told Abraham that it was to be that second-born, Isaac, that was to obtain the first-born position currently held by Ishmael, Abraham cried out to God, Oh, if only Ishmael could live in your presence. Abraham determined he wanted Ishmael as that first-born. Isaac determined he wanted Esau as that first-born. Neither was going to get what they wanted. And so we see that a day arrives 
when Esau has just come in from a hunt, famished. And he sees that Jacob has prepared a pot of lentils, or more literally translated, red stew. Jacob, apparently never having been entirely comfortable with having the rights of the firstborn assigned to himself, decides he's going to help God out of this predicament. He's going to get Esau to openly and finally sell his traditional birthright to Jacob. Well, this impulsive Esau makes a statement in response to Jacob's proposal that begins with, well, since I'm about to die, all right, he might as well give his birthright to Jacob and seals, he seals the deal with an oath. The about to, I'm about to die statement, of course, isn't literal. It's just, just a saying, something akin to who cares. Okay. Of course, since God had long ago settled this issue, in reality, Esau had no birthright to sell because it already belonged to Jacob. And Jacob had no need to resort to treachery to obtain that birthright because the Lord had already assigned it to him. But you know what? Neither Jacob nor Esau had the faith to accept this as fact. Now we're also given here a small piece of information that we're going to find useful in the chapters ahead of us in Genesis. Esau is given a nickname. Edom. E-D-O-M. Edom. Edom means red. And it not only refers to his ruddy, hairy body features, but also to this famous incident at the stew pot that has just transpired. So for future reference, remember that Edom and Esau are the same person. Okay? And therefore, the future nation of Edom, so prevalent from here on in the Bible as an ongoing enemy of Israel, will also play a role in the end times. Okay? And know that the people of Edom, the Edomites, are simply the descendants of Esau. Well, finally in verse 34 we're told that Esau despised his birthright. A very serious biblical condemnation of Esau. Now I have little doubt that Rivka told Esau, as she undoubtedly did Jacob, that despite the chronological order of their birth, it was Jacob who was going to have firstborn rights. I mean, what a hurtful thing for Esau. I mean, knowing that, from his point of view, his own mother was telling him, him, the rightful Behor, all right, that he was not going to be recognized as the firstborn. I mean, how else could it have felt that his mother was siding with Jacob and against him? Okay? I mean, this had to have shaped a lot of Esau's life, making him somewhat bitter, untrusting, not just a little bit cynical. I mean, his father Isaac was not a poor man. To think that Esau had no interest in having all the rights and powers of the firstborn, frankly, doesn't make any sense. I mean, he probably saw his losing of the firstborn rights as an inevitable, though grossly unfair, event. And so he behaved as though it didn't matter in the first place, you know kind of rejecting the office of firstborn before it was rejected for him. Folks, these people we read about in the Bible were just that, people. They had feelings, they had wants and needs, they had quirks, they had shortcomings, they had pride. 
They were real people. When we better understand their circumstances, it's not too hard to put ourselves in their shoes. Okay, let's back up just a little bit. And let's take a look at some circumstances surrounding this event that are not so evident, or at least not so evident to Gentiles. First, does anyone find it odd in this story of Jacob and Esau at the stew pot that we have a male, Jacob, doing the cooking here? I mean, clearly, the scriptures say that Jacob cooked the stew. Now, cooking was a woman's task, particularly when they were in camp, you know, or living in villages. Certainly men who were away, you know, hunting or, you know, uh, maybe out tending the flocks at some distance, did some cooking, but it was traditional. And under normal circumstances, it just would not have been done for a young man to be doing the cooking. So was Jacob a sissy? I mean, was he, was he at his mother's favoritism, turned him into a mama's boy? That's why he was cooking? I mean, where I'm going is that when we understand Hebrew culture, much of which, by the way, has carried over into more modern Hebrew traditions, when we run across biblical scenes like this one of Jacob and Esau and the stew, we can recognize that something out of the ordinary is happening here. It's not usual that Jacob, about 15 years old at this time, would have been doing the cooking. Okay, So what's going on here? Well, the answer may well lie in one of those beautiful Hebrew traditions that is part of every observant Jewish family today. It's a tradition that goes back to time immemorial, and it's called sitting shiva. And it's part of the rites of mourning the dead. So what has that got to do with our story here? Well, the ancient Hebrew sages are near unanimous that the context for what is playing out between Jacob and Esau is that there's been a death in the family. The one who died was Abraham. Lentil stew or lentil soup is called the meal of mourning. Lentil soup is a traditional food eaten during a particularly during a seven-day period of mourning. And I'll explain a little bit more of that in a minute. So think about it. And just back up and think about it for a minute. What's the point of the Holy Scripture going on and on about this being a red stew and identifying it even as lentils? We don't usually get very detailed meal descriptions in the Bible, do we? Okay. I mean, how, how does it add anything to tell us that it's red and it's lentils. How does this add to the context? I mean, what difference does it make that they're eating lentil soup? I mean, well, guess what? Any good Jew knows that this is indicative of a period of mourning. But there's more evidence. Those who are members of the immediate family are not to cook during that period. Other family members or friends are to provide food for this seven-day period, or foods pre-prepared, pre cooked, preserved before the death of the family member can be eaten. But here's the thing. The definition of just who makes up the immediate family is important. 
By tradition, one's father and mother, one's sister and brother, one's son and daughter, or a spouse. That's the immediate family as far as these mourning procedures are concerned. Grandchildren are not. Okay. Therefore, Rivka, who normally cooked for the family, would have been prohibited during this time. Jacob was Adam's grandson. Adam's, Abraham's grandchild. So he would have been permitted to cook. He was outside the bounds of that immediate family. So perhaps that's why it was he who was cooking the lentils. Why lentils? Well, in fact, we also find by tradition that eggs are also considered a food suitable for mourning. What these two food items, lentils and eggs, have in common is that they're round. And the roundness illustrates the circular nature of life. The cycle of being conceived from nothing and returning to nothing. Okay, physically speaking, of course. And it also speaks of one generation dying off and the next beginning in this unending circular pattern. Now, it's the Bible and naturally the Hebrew thought that comes from it that shows us that history is circular. It repeats itself. Over and over we see these same patterns that God ordained and established and wove, woven into the fabric of the universe repeating. And naturally it's secular humanism and it's proud son, Darwinian evolutionism, that says, oh no, history is a straight line. It starts from un some unknown place in the past and randomly proceeds to some unknowable future. Okay? There's no patterns. Morality evolves. The old becomes obsolete. The new becomes preeminent. Okay? The old becomes replaced by something that destroys the pattern and establishes a new one. The illustration of the lentil and the egg says otherwise. Okay? And I really like this tradition. All right? We humans need physical illustrations of God's spiritual principles. We really need them. When we put them aside or think we don't need them anymore, the result is deception and error. So it appears that Abraham had just died. And by the way, when you go back and do a biblical timeline, it all absolutely dead lines up perfectly. Makes all the sense in the world. So it appears that Abraham had just died and Jacob was preparing the meal of mourning when Esau shows up from the hunt. Now he didn't come in to some surprise that his grandfather Abraham had died. He was well aware before he went out. Rather than be with the family and do his duty, right, to be a mourner and a comforter to his father in particular, he did what pleased him, to go out and hunt. Now it's no coincidence that when Jacob approached Esau with the offer to trade Esau's birthright for some lentil stew that Esau responded with these morbid, morbid words, Look, I'm about to die. What's the use of my rights of Bechor? 
Okay. This was at least in part graveyard humor done at the most inappropriate time. But let's remember, point out again, at this point Esau and Jacob were mid to late teens. And Esau in particular was an angry mid to late teen. Okay. So these weren't mature or well thought out words he blurted out. Okay. They were impetuous and foolish. Yet it shows us just what he thought about his exalted position as the Bekor, the firstborn, and the answer is not much. Now look, when we talk about the rights, the rights of the firstborn, which includes getting a double portion, by the way, of the family's wealth, and of course the right to rule over that clan, it's easy to forget about the responsibilities that goes hand in hand with all those rights. Okay. Any straight-thinking parent knows what I'm talking about. Okay. Any executive or manager or leader knows what I'm talking about. Yeah, there's rewards and honors that come with those positions. But there are duties that, if carried out properly, rise above any amount of reward and personal benefit. Esau knew his grandfather Abraham very well and was equally aware of the great and terrible burden he carried. Esau, of course, knew his own father, Isaac, well, and the tremendous burden of responsibilities for the covenants that he would carry. Esau didn't want any part of it. Okay. Without doubt, like many teens, Esau wanted all the fun stuff, telling people what to do, but nobody telling him what to do. He loved the idea of possessing the best place at the table, being wealthy and all that, but he didn't want the responsibilities and he didn't want the duties that went along with being the firstborn. The great sage Rashi says that another lesson of this incident is how a righteous person views life in general versus how a wicked person does the same. Jacob the righteous example, his view of life is, what am I here to accomplish? What are my duties and my goals? The wicked one's view, Esau's view is, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. Esau was thinking, after contemplating the death of his grandfather, that he didn't want to be tied to all these duties. No way. He just wanted to enjoy life, get as much as he could all he could. Responsibilities for suckers. Well, Jacob chose that very moment to challenge Esau because no one knows another person better perhaps than one twin knows another. Jacob knew that Esau was ready to give up any hold he might have had on that birthright and all the burdensome duties that came with it that he didn't want. And the death of his grandfather and the thinking that I think we all tend to do about our own lives when someone near to us dies must have driven him over the edge. Okay. The divinely ordained duties that Isaac must have talked about and Abraham must have talked about were nothing Esau wanted. So much of what is contained in verse... 27 now is to inform us of the character 
of each young man. It says Esau became a hunter, while Jacob was a quiet man who lived in tents. Now, I'm not going to spend but a minute with this, but please take note. Only in two places in the Holy Scripture is a man called a hunter, labeled a hunter. In Hebrew, Zayid, T-S-A-Y-I-D. The first man to be labeled as a hunter as a means of identifying his character. Anybody know? Nimrod, right. The only other one is Esau. As the Bible uses it, Said is a negative term. It really almost means a stone-cold killer. It's a guy who kills animals for the love of killing them and has little if any conscience in killing a man. Jacob, on the other hand, is called a quiet man in some Bibles, a plain man in others, and a peaceful man in others still. The Hebrew word that's being translated is tom, T-A-M. Now, while peaceful or plain is not necessarily incorrect, it kind of misses the point. Okay. Jacob and Esau are being contrasted here. They're being compared as opposites. Okay. Tom means more blameless, not having guilt. Okay. It's implied that this blamelessness is being blameless before God. It's, it's kind of another way of approaching righteous. All right. The contrast here is about one who loves killing versus one who loves life. One who wanders aimlessly versus one who stays near. One who slaughters the flock versus the one who shepherds the flock. Okay. The last verse of chapter 25 really sums up this entire episode and requires no comment at all. It says, Thus Esau showed how little he valued his birthright. Okay. I think we'll call it a night right here.